together. That's going to be a theme, a key word that I want us to kind of lean into over the next several weeks together as we look at what it means to be together. Um, together is one of those words. Uh, you've ever been to, the, to a restaurant where maybe you're on a, a lunch meeting or something like that and the waiter or waitress walks up and says, you know, are you together? And that means something, right? That means uh, responsibility. Uh, that means who, who's carrying the bill uh, in this moment? Um, or are we separate? Um, you know, and that, that's also sometimes a moment where, you know, maybe like if you're in a dating relationship, if you're, if you're single here today and you're kind of in that dating part of life and maybe you're out on one of those early dates, you know, like where it's like you're just getting to know each other and stuff like that. And then the waiter, the waitress walks up and says, are you together? It's like, you're kind of looking like, are we? You know, like it's this moment of, are we together or, or not? And so then there's a new level of togetherness in that moment of, are we together? And what does that mean? You know, a define the relationship moment kind of deal um, based on the waiter's question of, are you together? Um, so together has layers to it and levels. Um, it, it, it means something. And it also means something when we're not, when, when we're not together and there's distinction, and we allow those distinctions to be more of what defines us than what it is that actually brings us together. Now, I'll tell you this, we had hoped tonight to begin an initiative that was going to run parallel to this sermon series on togetherness of, of doing life together, um, of really trying to cultivate more and more within the life of First Baptist New Orleans, this idea of a, of a multi-generational and intergenerational ministry where different generations are influencing and impacting one another to where our senior adults are spending time with our children and our children with our senior adults and, and all those groups in between, um, you know, are just kind of all mingled together. But as this fourth wave of COVID has continued to kind of um, ramp up and have an impact, we, we just kept kind of, you know, looking at the pieces. We were going to have a meal together, and that was going to be part of our life together. And we said, you know, maybe right now it's not the best time to do a big meal together. So we peeled that back. And so then this week had to make the, the difficult decision to, to put a pin in it, to pause for a moment on this overall strategy, not because um, we just want to cancel things to be to be canceling things. Instead, we're just wanting to postpone it to a time that we think it's going to be most successful um, because we don't want um, to go through all of the labor. And there was a lot of you in this room. I just want to say thank you to that we're preparing for this. And some of you were even pushing yourself beyond even your, your comforts and, and, and what you were really feeling comfortable with doing to maybe help us with this. Um, and so we thank you for that. But in the best interest of everyone, we're going to postpone life together as far as a multi generational ministry. But do be on the lookout that as this wave kind of comes down, we hope here in the next few weeks, um, be looking for some additional things that we are going to do together. So we're going through this together. That's the reality is that, you know, it's not that we're not going to do life together. We're, we're doing COVID together. And I don't know if you've noticed, but, but this just keeps going. And, and there's no indication that there's not going to be a fifth wave at some point, maybe after Christmas and all these things. So we're going to keep doing this. And church family, I want us to do this well. I want us to go through what it is to go through a global pandemic together well. I want us to be found together in every season that comes our way because we don't know what's around the corner. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We did, none of us saw what would come in March of 2020 coming. We didn't see that. And so none of us knows what is ahead, but we are called in God's word to do it together. And so let us be found faithfully going through every one of these seasons, every one of these waves, every season of life together. 
Together is something that Paul communicates again and again and again to the church. Together is seen in the one anothering that his word calls us to. When he says love one another, that implies that you're together with somebody else to love the other. So much of what he communicated in his letters was meant to be received, not individually, where when we read you, we read the singular you, but really what he's, the way he's writing and the grammar he uses is a plural you, a y'all, as we would say in the South. And so even in the letters themselves, there was the implication that they would be together. There would be a togetherness when they heard the word of God and when they studied the word of God. And so together is central to what it means to be the church. Together is central to the way that Paul understood the family of God. Together is central to what it means for us to be a faithfully, biblically thriving church today. And so as we move now into a season of thinking about the nature of our togetherness, I want to walk through a few facets of our ministry and a few aspects to what it means to be a church And I think the most foundational part of what we need to consider and we all need to be on the same page about are our convictions. And I want to say that's not just my thought that I'm imposing on you, but indeed it's the word of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10, I want to invite you to turn. And we're going to look there, but then we're going to really be looking at all of 1 Corinthians this morning, seeing how Paul is communicating what I would call some core convictions, some some convictions that he had that he was trying to really push into the church. And so when you found your place to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word because what we hear today is not the thoughts of Chad, but the word of the Lord. And so turn your attention and give your honor to the Lord and his word. Here, verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. Father, I pray that today, through your word, you would bring about the unity the togetherness that you intend for the body. We admit and we acknowledge that we are incapable of bringing about such togetherness on our own. It's only the work that your spirit can do. So would you fill us fresh today? Would you remind us today from your word in 1 Corinthians, the convictions that you intend for us to share so that we can be of the same mind, the same understanding, and of the same conviction for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. The way that I've phrased it is to be a biblically thriving church because I'm convinced that that's what Paul was after and that is what Jesus wants for us is to be a biblically thriving church. And that's what he intends for every congregation in the world is for them to be biblically thriving. So this isn't just about us, us here in the West, here in New Orleans. This is every congregation and these convictions that I see over and over and over again in God's word, I believe are universal. 
In other words, this is not just a list for us in America. This is a list that is true from God's word for every congregation in the world. That if we will hold these convictions together, and we will hold them, each local congregation, then when we come together, there will be true unity in the body. Unity that overcomes every division. You see, Paul was writing to a divided congregation. There were distinctions. You just keep going right here in chapter 1 in verse 11. It says, For it's been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people. I love that phrase, Chloe's people. You know, like Chloe's people were telling me that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, that's Peter, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. And then I love this little uh, you know, aside for Paul, I did in fact baptize the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Notice what he said. There are reports of divisions among you. And those divisions, did you notice it even included some people saying, well, I'm with Christ. And he actually lumps that in with the group that's saying, well, I'm with Cephas, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Paul. That even those that were claiming the name of Jesus exclusively, saying, you know, I'm just a Jesus person, that even that was not actually what Paul would say is true togetherness. I mean, let's just be reminded of that, that even if we say, you know, it's, it's all about Jesus, we can actually be misguided in that. Paul's bringing to the surface that sometimes you might say you're with Christ, but you're really not because you're allowing even that to be a way of separating you and distinguishing you in some way that brings disunity to the body. Man, what a difficult reality that even when you claim the name of Christ, it might bring division. Is there any hope? I mean, is there any hope? I mean, for 2,000 years, I mean, Paul's having to deal with this in the very first century, and here we are today with seemingly even more things to divide us. More options, if you will. More preferences and opinions. More convictions, if you will. Is there any hope for us? Well, based on the authority of God's Word, I say that there is. That for us to be a biblically thriving church, what Paul was after here, why he writes all of these chapters, 16 chapters of information to them, is because he's convinced that they can be a thriving congregation. And so he's leading them in that direction. So what are those core convictions that Paul is putting forward? Well, I see five as I look at Scripture. Now, if someone were here to get into it with me and say, well, I see six, I'd probably say I could be convinced that I could see six core convictions in, in God's Word. In other words, I don't want to get up and, and dig a hole and dig in my heels in some way that's, that's not beneficial. 
But as I've labored with the Lord, as I've been in pastoral ministry, as I've tried to be faithful in the pulpit and be a student of God's word and just abide in the word, allow it to steep in my mind, these are five core convictions that I see again and again and again and again and again throughout the Bible. And that I have seen the fruit of in the life of God's people. So I come to you a convicted man today, convicted that what we're going to look at today is seen replete throughout God's word. And I want you to see it today in 1 Corinthians to a church that was facing division, but that God, I mean, but, but that God through Paul was leading him to bring about a togetherness. So to be a biblically thriving church, first of all, we must be scripture fed. To be a biblically thriving church, we first and foremost must be scripture fed. Now, why do I lead with that? I got a little pushback back when I first came to you, First Baptist, and I shared with you the core convictions. That was the very first thing, very first sermon series was, Chad, why don't you say Christ first? Why, why did you say, you know, we need to be scripture fed? And you said that before you said we need to be Christ centered. Because I'm convinced of this, that there are many people, even in our day right now, that are using the name of Jesus in a way that is not supported by the scriptures. And so if... We just say, we're just going to be all about Jesus. And we're just going to say Jesus, say Jesus, and we're going to close that book and just Jesus, 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 and we're just going to start doing our own thing. Before long, we will be found in idolatry that this word clearly condemns. So we need to know that this is not at odds with Christ first. But this is how we know Christ. This is how we are able to discern what is true about Christ and what is false about Christ. This is how we're able to know what it means to put Christ first. In other words, I might say I'm putting Jesus first, but that might actually contradict what the Word says about putting Christ first and about putting His kingdom first. So we need the Word of God. We need to be Scripture-fed in order to understand anything about Christ and to understand the gospel of Christ. And here's, here's how you see that Paul was convinced that being Scripture-fed was first and foremost. The whole letter of 1 Corinthians. That's how. You see, Paul wrote a letter that is Scripture. And you might say, well, did Paul really think that his letters had scriptural authority? Yes. Colossians 4.16 makes abundantly clear this point that Paul wrote the letter to the church at Colossae, and then he instructed them at the end of the letter to then take their letter that they read while they were together and bring it to the church at Laodicea and to have them, when they gather, to read that letter and then to get from the church at Laodicea the letter that he wrote to them that we do not have and then bring it to them and read it in their gathering. So in other words, he is intending for the gathered church to be reading his letters and for them to have a binding effect upon them. Because Paul realizes that these aren't his words. These are the words of the Lord. That's the essence of apostleship is to be a messenger. It is to be a mail courier. You're, you're bringing the mail. You're not making the mail. You're bringing the word of the Lord. So Paul understood that. In fact, he makes it very clear when you turn over to just like chapter 6 and chapter 7, when he's talking about in, in verse 10 of chapter 7, he says, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. He, he distinguishes, he makes very clear that this is the Lord speaking to his people and they need to be scripture fed. 
The additional way that Paul makes this clear, even in this letter, is he provides in this letter 18 references, 18 quotations, and even more allusions to the Old Testament. He quotes from Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Job, Psalms, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Hosea. Just in the letter to 1 Corinthians. Why would he do that? Because he's convinced that to be a thriving church, they must be Scripture-fed. He's feeding them the Word. He's developing his thoughts based on the Word. He is giving the people the Word of God, and he himself understands that what he is writing is the very Word of God. So first and foremost, he was convinced they needed to be Scripture-fed. That is why he prioritized at great expense to himself and at the risk of lives of the couriers, of people that would bring the letters to get the Word of God to the church. And for the last 2,000 years, men and women have died, literally burned at the stake, been decapitated for the Word of God. We need to reclaim just how essential this is in the life of the body. And that it's meant to trickle down into the small parts of your life to where you become one who depends on the Word of God for your daily sustenance for your daily bread, to be sustained, to find guidance in this life, to know what is true, to do what is right, to define these terms that we look at like justice and mercy and love and grace, to allow Scripture to define these things. We must be Scripture-fed if we are to be a biblically thriving church. Second, we must be servant-led. We must be servant-led if we are to be a biblically thriving church. Now, this is important because Paul leads with it. Notice what he says in, ver in the very first verse. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, in other passages and other letters, he will write Paul, a servant of Christ, literally a slave of Christ, and Timothy, our brother, Paul will write to the churches as a servant. In fact, he even says it here in chapter 3, verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. You see, the very essence of Paul's apostleship showed that he was a servant of the Lord. It's, it's revealed in this translation in the English of this, this idea of Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. In other words, Jesus is the one who's in charge. Jesus is the one who said to Paul, Paul, you go and tell. And so Paul, as a servant, said, I will go and tell. You see, that's what the church needs more than anything. It's for men and women who submit themselves fully to Jesus Christ and his authority, who then in boldness and in courage can do what he has commanded them to do because they know they've submitted themselves to the Lord. They're able to stand boldly. I mean, Paul confronts an unbelievable amount of offenses in the church at Corinth. I mean, this letter is full of detailed descriptions of of tremendous unhealth in the body that Paul deals with. And he deals with in the open. He wants this letter read. 
And so he deals with these matters, and he deals with it in a bold way. And you say, man, where does this boldness come from? Maybe he's just one of these really bold guys. But yet what he says is, when I came to you, I was kind of meek. There wasn't much to me. I wasn't real eloquent. I wasn't this great orator in the pulpit. Apollos, now he's something, but not me. I'm just, just Paul, but my letters come to you with some force. And the reason they do is because I'm convinced that God is speaking. God is speaking, not me. I'm simply telling you what God has said. And that's what gave his ministry authority and power. The same will be true today with pastors and deacons in the life of the church. The same will be true today when under shepherds submit themselves to the good shepherd and do what the shepherd says. You see, the reality for an under shepherd is that you are under the good shepherd as a pastor and you simply go where the good shepherd says go. You don't ask questions about, well, what's the grass like over in that field? What, what's the condition of the sheep? Are they, you know, they, they doing pretty well? Are they healthy? If not, then I, I'm not going to go to that field. You, you don't do this business transaction with the good shepherd. You're under the good shepherd. If he says go, you go. And if he says stay, you stay. And only in that do you have any confidence that you've heard the voice of the shepherd and you're doing what he's called you to do regardless of the difficulty and in the joys giving him praise because it's for his glory. In the life of our deacon ministry, we talked about this when I went through this first run, is we need in the life of this church deacons who are faithful servants to the body. I love over these last eight months of traveling with our deacons. In fact, if you're a deacon in this room, would you just lift your hand real fast so that your church can just kind of see some of, the, some of the folks that serve as deacons in this room. You have a phenomenal group of deacons here at First Baptist New Orleans who are hungry to serve the body. In fact, we are moving toward a deacon ministry where there'll be four teams of, of ministry that will be going on so that our deacons are not just in deacon and title alone, but are doing meaningful service for the body, truly an extension of the pastoral ministry. You see, the reality is I wish that as a pastor, I could sit down with every one of you on a weekly basis and spend time with you to help shepherd you, to know what's going on in your life, to pray for you, to hopefully be an encouragement to you, all of those things. But with a congregation and hopefully a, a, a congregation that will continue to reach the lost and to grow, that's an impossibility. But, but thanks be to God, he has ordained that pastors and deacons will serve together to care for the body, to tend to God's people. And so I'm thankful for the deacon ministry here and that they desire to serve in that capacity in a way that is faithful. God's word makes clear that those that were leading the church saw themselves first and foremost as servants. And I encourage you, whatever season of life you find yourself, is that your primary identity? That you're a servant? If you're single, are you a servant to your friends? Are you a servant to your family? If you're married, are you a servant to your spouse? If you have children, are you a servant to your children? Ch children, are you a servant to your parents? You that are employed, are you a servant to your coworkers and to your boss? 
You that, that live in the city, are you a servant to your neighbors? You see, the reality is that in every post of life that we find ourselves, we are called to be like Christ by being servants. And in that is found the type of leadership that the church thrives under. So to be a biblically thriving church, we must be scripture-fed, we must be servant-led, and then thirdly, we see we must be spirit-filled. Spirit-filled. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except his Spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the person without the spirit does not receive what comes from God's spirit because it's foolishness to him, and he's not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually." Paul is making clear that this message of the gospel and the things that are made clear from the gospel, how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the law and the prophets and the Psalms, how the promises of God find their yes in him, how ultimately all things have been submitted to his authority, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. All of these things are spiritual things. But yet our minds are darkened apart from the work of God's spirit to understand them. So if we are to be anything, we must be filled with the Spirit of God. But then Paul continues in chapter 12. And I invite you to turn to chapter 12, verse 4. Paul goes on to explain the work of God's Spirit within the body in this way. Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God produces each gift in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. You hear that? It, each of the gifts given are for our togetherness to thrive. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, a message of, message of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between the Spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. One and the same Spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person as he wills. For just as... The body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into the body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all given one Spirit to drink. Paul is making clear that it is only by the work of the Spirit that we are going to experience the togetherness that he intends within the body. A togetherness to have the same mind, to understand the scriptures, and a togetherness to build the body up by using the gifts that God has given through prophecy, through healing, through teaching, through instruction, through faith, through encouragement, through administration and leadership. All of these gifts that God has identified in his word that his spirit gives for the building up of the body. But when we look over at the, the letter of Acts, 
the record of, of what the Holy Spirit was doing in those early days of the church, there was this clear manifestation that was called filling with the Spirit that happened at these critical moments in the life of the church when they would humble themselves and pray. There would be persecution and they would all be found together huddled up and praising the Lord because maybe someone had just gotten out of jail in a miraculous way and they're gathered together and it says, and, and they were all filled with the Spirit and the place shook. The, the ground literally shook beneath them. And then they went out boldly proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. I want you to see that there was something special that happened when the people of God humbled themselves and they prayed. They positioned themselves humbly before the Lord and they got down together and they were praying and they were enjoying the presence of the Lord and they were worshiping Him and giving glory to His name. We even have some of these prayers recorded and then He just fills them fresh with His Holy Spirit. It's so easy for us to be satisfied with something that looks like filling of the Holy Spirit that is really an emptiness of the Holy Spirit. It's so easy for us today to orchestrate kind of a Hobby Lobby experience of fruit. You see, you go to Hobby Lobby today, you won't find any fresh produce, but you'll find plastic and styrofoam that looks like fruit. Things that you can put out on the table and it, it looks good. It looks just like real fruit, but it's not. And today, we have become satisfied with a Hobby Lobby edition of the Fruit of the Spirit that looks so real, but is so empty and hollow. May God in His grace humble us again and bring us to a place where we're on our knees together and we're desperate for Him and we're celebrating His grace and what He's doing in the life of the body how he's bringing us together in a way that he gets the glory, that he's dealing with issues of, of racism that have divided us. He's dealing with those sort of divisions. He's dealing with issues of, of politics and how that has divided us. He's dealing with issues of, of COVID-19 and mass mandates and vaccinations and those things that have divided us. He's dealing with those things and he's bringing us together and we're coming in together and we're praying with one another and then he fills us with his spirit. And I don't want an earthquake, but I do want to experience the power of God. And if that means an earthquake, then I'll take it. Because the result again and again in the book of Acts is they went out boldly. And I want for us to be a church that goes out boldly in the name of the Lord into New Orleans and all nations because we've been filled with the Spirit of God. So when we are Scripture-fed, truly feasting on the Word of God, when we are servant-led, where our leaders truly embrace an identity above all else as a servant of Jesus Christ, that's who they are in this life. And when we as a church are being filled with the Spirit of God because we are praying and seeking His face, 
We're, we're feasting on the word. We're being led by servant leaders into this posture of prayer and being filled with the Spirit. Then we will be Christ-centered because that's the work of the word. That's the work of a servant leader. That's the work of the Holy Spirit is to fix our eyes on Jesus. So if we're going to be a biblically thriving church, we fourth must be Christ-centered. And I want you to see how these things move together all toward Christ. You see, the reality is that when you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, verse 23, Paul makes clear that this is all about Christ when he says this, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. You see, of all that Paul was communicating in, in a world that had never heard the name of Jesus, in a world where there were little pockets of Jews where he was going to their local synagogues and sharing, but then often not being received well, and then going into a Gentile world that knew very little of the Jewish faith of Yahweh, and had never heard of Jesus in this resurrection of the dead, he goes to them and proclaims Christ crucified. That the way that you can be saved is someone died for you and was buried in a tomb and then raised on the third day. This is ludicrous. This is the craziest thing that people had ever heard. Or as he says it in, in verse 24, he says, Yet to those who are called, he said, it's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. His wisdom and his strength manifest in Jesus, and Jesus bringing to us what looked like foolishness and weakness. That's how he came, meek. There weren't things about him that would have marked him the Messiah by the world standard. They were looking for another kind of king, but this was God's king. This Christ, this Christ who was crucified. Paul then confirms it almost like bookends on a book. Turn over to chapter 15 and he reinforces this. In verse 3, he says, For I passed on to you as most important. I mean, catch that. He's saying this is most important. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. What's another way of saying that? Christ crucified. He says at the very beginning, chapter 1, what we preach is Christ crucified. And then he comes back at the end and he says, now I just want to remind you one more time that this was what was most important. More important than anything else was this, Christ crucified. But yet he, he goes further here. He says that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. In other words, he's saying if you're Scripture fed and if you'll listen to me, a servant of the Lord, then the Spirit is able to illuminate your eyes and remind you Remind your heart of what Christ has done for us. That all of these things were according to the Scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve and then to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. And he's setting all this up to remind them of the power of the resurrection. That's the point of chapter 15. He's, he's building this momentum. He's saying, I preach Christ crucified because it's only in Christ crucified that you have Christ resurrected. 
And so if we don't believe in Christ crucified, then we won't believe in Christ resurrected and we will remain dead in our sins. And so he's, he's reminding them, he's bringing them back to this central reality, but he's doing it in the word, he's doing it as a servant, he's doing it based on the work of the Spirit, that they would be centered in on Christ. So everything we do, every song we sing, is to center our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our lives on Christ. Every prayer we pray is for Christ. When I preach the word, it is to ultimately exalt Christ. Because I preach Christ crucified. Why do we do the three circles in our small groups? Because it's only through Christ crucified, dead and resurrected, buried and resurrected, that people can be born again. That the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. This is what God's word is communicating and confirming. So if we are to be a biblically thriving church, we must be scripture fed We must be servant-led. We must be spirit-filled. We must be Christ-centered. Then finally, we must be father-glorifying. And I love that this comes last because it's really the culmination of all of these things. It's like these four are the ingredients that make up what brings glory to God. God is glorified when we are people of his word. God is glorified when servants that he has appointed serve faithfully the church. God is glorified to pour out his spirit and to give us gifts for the building up of the body. And God is glorified when we exalt Christ with our lives and our words and everything we do. But you know, the rubber really meets the road. And I want you to see it in chapter 6. Because Paul is not just leaving this abstract. He wants your life, your body, to count for the glory of God. He's wanting you this week to live for God's glory in practical, tangible ways. In fact, that's what the meat or the the heart of this letter is devoted to. He is dealing with different things that are facing the believers. And he's saying, do these things for for the glory of God. You see, in fact, he, he says this, beginning in verse 18 of, of chapter 6. He says, flee sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. So that's how he's setting it up, is that sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. But then he then defines it this way. Look at how this all comes together. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? In other words, he's saying, don't you know you've been filled with the Spirit? Don't don't you know that your body is actually occupied space? Who is in you, he says. Whom you have from God. And then he says something that, that counters the way that we think about ourselves. And we need this corrective. He says, you are not your own. You are not your own. I am not my own. I mean, think about how that changes the way that you think. I mean, the way that we talk about ourselves today in our culture is, is I am my own. And don't you tell me what to do. I am my own. I'm my own person. But God, in his love for you and his love for me, is saying, you're not your own. And he reminds you what that means. Doesn't mean you belong to your mom or daddy. 
It doesn't mean that you belong to a political party. It doesn't mean that you belong to an affinity group. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're defined by the color of your skin or your sexual orientation. That's not how he defines it. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Now, what's he talking about there? Everything about this letter communicates what he's talking about there, and it's this. Jesus died for you. He gave his blood. He died for you. He ransomed you with his life. So you don't belong to yourself anymore. Who do you belong to? You belong to Christ. That's who you belong to. to. That's why Paul can say, I, I have been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. You were bought at a price. So, so what? So what? So glorify God with your body. Glorify God with your body. For each one of us this week, that's going to mean something. The context of this passage, flee sexual immorality. For some of you this week, it means that you're going to stop doing that sinful habit that you've been doing. And some of you say, well, I'm not doing it with somebody. It's just me. You're sinning against a body you don't own. A body that is occupied by the Spirit of God, a body that was purchased with the blood of Jesus. You are not your own. Your body is not an instrument for you to use for your own self-gratification. That's not what your body exists for. Your body is for the glory of God. For some of you, it means you're going to stop this week flirting with that guy or that girl at the workplace because that's going to lead you on a road that could hurt the relationships that are most important in your life. And you know that you've been playing with fire. You know what you've been thinking that might could lead to. And so to glorify God with your body, you're going to treat that person with respect and boundaries that will bring glory to God. You're going to pray for them in a way that brings glory to God. You're going to be faithful in your relationships. For some of you, it maybe means that you're going to stop putting really bad stuff in your body. Whether that be drugs, excessive alcohol, or just junk food. And I love Bluebell too. I'm, I'm in it with you. But excessive abuse to our body sets our bodies up for failure. Practical application of this is going to look vastly different in a body. But don't you love that one spirit through the one body of scriptures is working so that we together show that we have one Lord. And that the mosaic of our obedience this week will only serve to exalt Christ. That when people will look then at us as a body, they'll say, man, it looked different of what each person did in the coming week to glorify God with their body, but they were united in this, in this conviction that they needed to be Scripture-fed and servant-led, Spirit-filled and Christ-centered, and Father glorifying with their bodies. Because when you take that seriously this week as you leave this place, we're only going to be in this room for an hour, a little over an hour. 
And so you've got a, 166 and a half hours to go from this moment to the next time that we're scheduled to be together again. If you'll take seriously honoring God with your body, and I believe the, the, the aspect of this is Paul's communicating corporately to them, but he knows they're going to scatter and they're going to do things privately. But if they'll take seriously honoring God with their body, then when they come together again, they will glorify God with the body of Christ. You're in training. You're going into training this week. And that training is meant to strengthen the body. To strengthen the body. All to the glory of God. But we preach Christ crucified. And so I want to invite us in this moment to worship the Lord in song. I'm going to invite for Rick and those who are leading us in worship to come and to lead us in this time of response, of just worshiping the Lord for what it is that he has done. But I want you to take this list of convictions this week, and I want you to think about the practical application of these aspects. Are you being scripture-fed? Are you reading God's word on a regular basis at all? Even one verse a day. Are you embracing identity as a servant? Are you praying that God would fill you fresh with his spirit this week? I love a dear sister shared just before the service that she was praying for God to give her opportunities, to fill her with his spirit, to be able to sow seeds of the gospel into the life of a mutual friend that she is hoping will come to Christ. Are you, are you desiring to to have Christ at the center, to fix your eyes on Jesus this week. Because when those things culminate together, you will bring glory to God. So I invite you, stand to your feet. Let us respond in this moment with song. And you worship the Lord, for you are not your own, but you were bought at a price.